The following content is not a substitute for medical advice. Um, where to start? I, how many days ago? Six, about five days ago? How many? I don't even know time Six. right now. Six days ago, uh, I got in the car to pick up our son from school. And I had gotten a text from my sister's husband, um, Kevin, to, to call him right away. And I've gotten these before from him, different issues, hospitals, driving the car off the road, other things like that. Uh, it's, I, I communicated usually with Kevin first before I communicate with my sister. So my brother-in-law texts me, call me as soon as you get this. And I had my earbuds in and I immediately called him, still just thinking, oh my God, what now? She's just back in the hospital. And uh, he answered the phone. She's gone and wept. She had died uh, just hours before. Um, and I turned the car around immediately. I hadn't gotten very far and came back into the house and told Amy that uh, you need to go get the, the kid because uh, my sister's dead. And um, I spent a lot of time talking him down from his um, just just utter just sadness. You know, he hadn't probably told anyone up to this point. So it was a really difficult conversation. And you and I both know those, those conversations. And, and, but it was, it was strange to learn my sister had just died. And, um, I found myself really wanting to help him any way I could. Uh, the last few years have been rough just to, to paint the picture with my sister. My sister was an alcoholic, a severe alcoholic. And uh, she's my little sister. Uh, she was born in Sioux City, Iowa. Um, she's about five years younger than I am, or three years younger than I am. I'm five years younger than my brother. <laughs> three years younger than me. Four. Right? Four? I don't know. Yeah. My sister and I have a long history. I, I couldn't even begin to like talk about it. any of us who have siblings you're close to. Just think of your histories, and I have a similar history. We were inseparable uh, growing up, and I looked out for my sister a lot. We got along. Uh, I, I wasn't, you know, like a mean big brother from all accounts. We came over to Seattle, you know, we both lived in Spokane. I was able to move a few years before her, then she moved over. We were roommates for a while, even over here. Over here in Seattle. Over here in Seattle. And I don't know how many years ago it was. We started to notice that Lee wasn't communicating as much and I just didn't hear from her very often. And she would bail on everything, you know. And, and before I go on, and we can talk about this, but I really hate, I don't want her to, I don't want her to be remembered as an alcoholic. That's her identity. Like, that's who she is. She was an alcoholic. But she was a lot more than that. I just, I have to get that out. I just feel, you know, does that make sense? Yes. Um, I think it's important for you to be honest about her alcoholism. Yeah. And her disordered eating too. Yeah. I think that's an, an important part of this. Yeah. She's anorexic. And those are two diseases that can and will kill you if people don't get help for those. But it's also important to remember that there's, it's people with those diseases. They don't define the person. And I think that's what you're trying to say. 
Yeah. You want to make sure her memory isn't just her diseases. Yeah. My little sister brought, here's, here's my little sister. Okay. She brought home animals all the time, all the time, every stray, whatever animal she found that animal, it ended up in our house. We ended up with our dog, Ollie named after Oliver Twist. Did she rescue it? And she wanted to be a vet and they took the dog to the vet. And as they're giving a shot to the dog behind the vet, you hear this thump. And my sister had passed out at the sight of needle. <laughs> she couldn't be a vet. She's a talented artist. She was, uh, she's one of those people who could knit and crochet and do beadwork like a, like just carried on from my aunts and my grandma. Um, loved to travel, loved music. We had similar taste to music and, um, was funny. Um, and just had a heart of gold. She was, she was, a, she was a sweet soul. Everyone says that she was a very sweet soul. But the last decade has been defined by her alcoholism and it ruined her and it ruined our relationship and it killed her. And, and it runs in my family. And I never thought my sister would though. I don't know why I, I, I've said this to you before. I, I, I thought Eric and I, my brother and I, my older brother and I, I thought we got out of the woods, so we were okay. We didn't get the bald gene from grandpa, and we didn't get the alcohol gene from the Richard side. And I just didn't see it until she came over that Christmas morning. And we hadn't seen her in a while. And she had a cane, and she reeked of booze, and it was, what, nine in the morning? Yeah, it was nine in the morning. And it... It, it brought me back. I've, I've had alcoholics in my life. I know a lot of people listening have, you know, you know, all the, you know, all the things, the smell at the weird hours and the, then you start piecing it together, the forgetfulness, the not showing up, the making plans and the not happening, not answering your phone or getting back to you ever isolating yourself. Um, and I, I think we talked to her husband at some point about it. And, and we talked to him later, and he was in the same boat. It, it takes a while to really identify that she has a drinking and an eating disorder. And then, so anyway, that that's been going on for a while. And 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 I, we went to the hospital a few years ago. That's when it really hit rock bottom. She was there for a long time. Yeah, she was there for a long time, and um, I would go there almost every day. And I remember thinking okay, so I'm not a blood relative and I am in the medical field and maybe she'll listen to me, maybe. But I'm going to come here every day and I'm going to talk to her about inpatient care because everyone at the hospital was also trying to talk to her into going into inpatient care. And... She just would not listen to anyone in the hospital and she wouldn't listen to her husband or her brothers. <laughs> and I, you know, and I, and I know that people have to be the ones who choose. That is absolutely it. You can't force or make anyone do anything. There has to be something that sparks enough motivation in them to make that choice. And I thought, well, this is the least I can do. And if I can't do it now, I may not ever be able to get her in inpatient therapy. Yeah, I look back at that time. If if she she still had a chance, 
I think she still had a fighting chance. I mean, a lot of damage yeah. had been done that to her was body, but like 2014. Yeah, and I yeah I go back to that, and we begged her to go into inpatient care, and you know it was yeah yeah I'm at rock bottom. We, I have to do this, and then it was you know more days would pass. Yeah, you know we could do outpatient, and then uh, and then she got out of there, and she stayed with her mother in law, and I would visit her out there, and um, and it became less and less. Well, I you know. And by the end of it, she didn't even have a problem. She could quit any time. By the end of the conversation, and I just remember being so dejected. If you didn't get her right when she was in the hospital bed dying, you weren't going to get her. And this is so important. People have to want to help themselves. You can't make them. And I've been telling myself this for... (laughs) I've been training myself for her to be gone for almost 10 years because I knew I had to protect myself and I had to, I had to believe that they, that the person has to help themselves because I couldn't, I'm her big brother. I was supposed to help her. And she would tell me that she would say, you're my big brother. She'd be drunk and tell me you're the only person who can help me. You're the only person you've always looked out for me. That's a shit ton of guilt and, awfulness to take on and I it made me mad you know I you know in a way I appreciated that she looked up to me and that she wanted me to help but I couldn't help I couldn't help her it's like someone's drowning and you can't pull them out of the water no you keep trying and you keep sending them life rafts and they will not grab the life raft and if I go in that water I'm going to drown yeah I I would I would so our last conversation I stand outside a pet, pet, the pet store, just picking up supplies for the dog. And, and then I had to go get the kids and, uh, I picked it up and sometimes I didn't, you know, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And I picked it up and, and she was so scared and so alone and so desperate. But, and I thought, well, so I thought there was a chance. And I said, well, here's what, here's what you need to do. And she said, I don't know what to do. And I said, here's what you need to do. We need to find a place for you to go. I will fly you there. I will take you there. I will, I will take care of it. I will do all of it. You have to want to go. I can't. There's nowhere around here. Okay, well, we'll go somewhere else. I don't want to go somewhere else. Okay, but we'll find a place. There's no place. Yes, there's, trust me, we live in America. There's a lot of places. There's a lot of alcoholics. We can find a place. She's like, they yell at me. They shame me. They're not going to, they're going to tell me I'm a bad person. <laughs> I said, I said, Lee, think of every movie you've ever seen about this. This is, this is exactly, this is the scene. This is the scene in the movie. And you're the one that everyone watching this movie knows is full of shit. This is, you just don't want to go. You can't. And we went back and forth and back and forth. And I just said, look, the next time you call me, can you just give me five names, five places? Tell me you found, you looked online. She's, she was functioning. She could have done that. And tell me, tell me which one, tell me which ones I'll look them up. And you just knew there was no chance that was going to happen either. And I told her, I asked her if she was in in any harm or if she was going to hurt herself like I did at the end of all of our conversations, which was hard to tell. But I'd wait for her to say that. That took a long time. And I told her I loved her. And she told me she loved me. Do you want to know what after that call, though? 
I went the wrong direction and I forgot to pick up the dog. And I just, it was like, look, look what happened every time. It's a small thing, but every time I, everything gets derailed and I'm driving around like a crazy person. Like, and I have kids and dogs in my car. I can't afford this. They need me to protect them, get them where they need to go. I feel like we need to talk about it. I feel like I think so many people are in a position where they have a loved one like that, a sister or a brother or a wife or a husband or a child. And it's just helpless. You just can't help them. And then they die. And all you can think is it's your fault. And you didn't do enough. I mean, her poor husband thinks that. And her husband did everything he could. He, did, he was a saint for years. You know, just, I mean, he made mistakes. We all do. Jesus. But he dealt with that for so many years. And then he, he had to support them. He got a job building a bookstore um, in Boise and, and went and did it and talked to her every day and supported them financially and was just waiting for her to get help too. And he's just beating himself up. And I just, I said, look, she was my sister. If you had not done enough, I'd be standing in front of you, fist clenched, telling you to fuck off. And you blew it. Why did you let that happen? And I am not saying that at all. So I have to remember for myself too, because I can't go down with this. I just, it sucks. It just sucks. The ending of her life was awful at a young age. And so many people in that way. And there, and we, we were talking about this. There's no other ending. There's no other ending. There's no, there's no movie movie script ending. There's no one coming to save you. You have to help yourself. That's right. No one is coming. That is the harsh truth for all of us, is that no one is coming to save us. It is absolutely our job to take radical responsibility for ourselves and get the help that we need, get the support that we need. And yes, when we reach out and ask for help and people offer support and help, accept their support, like allow them to support you. But at the end of the day, no one's going to save you. you. You have to save yourself. And you just, you wonder what happened. Like, when did it turn? When, when it was before that hospital visit, you know, when, when was there a time where, what went wrong? It's just a, like a slow boil. It's a series of small decisions over a long period of time. And I had noticed this all the time with patients and I'm not, I don't, I don't specialize in alcoholism or anything, but I have a lot of patients who are trying to do a lot of health transformation. And it really starts with that next decision. And I really mean it. You don't have to wait until Monday to stop drinking or (laughs) get help or to start a new health plan or You don't have to wait till your birthday or New Year's or the start of the month or after a vacation or you don't, it really is the very next decision that you make is the most important one. And then the next decision after that, and then the next decision after that, because it really is just a string of small decisions. Well, I know there's people out there who are struggling and I, I hope you'll find a reason to get help and to take care of yourself for you. 
not just because you'll make your family members sad, but for you, your life's worth living. It's slow suicide. I, I believe my sister was murdering herself for 10 years. I think it took 10 years about. And if you're out there and you have someone in your life who is is just in the throes of addiction, just deep in it, make sure you, you protect yourself. Make sure you take time to talk about this. Talk, there's Al-Anon, there's, there's therapy, there's friends, family. Talk about how you feel and prepare yourself for the worst. Hope for the best. But that's the best advice I could I could give because if I hadn't done that work, I wouldn't be sitting here being able to record this six days later. But I think it's very important that if you're out there and this is in your life, that you make sure that you don't lose yourself trying to save somebody and that that your grief isn't mixed with just absolute guilt and like you're a failure because this wasn't my fault. And you know what? It wasn't her fault either. John and I are both no strangers to grief. In fact, gosh, was it 10 years ago? We started doing death and music Mm -hmm. events. Um, You've hosted your mom show on KEXP. It's a grief show. Um, For anyone who maybe this is your first podcast of ours you've listened to. um, I've lost a brother and a sister to death. Uh, my dad died right before the pandemic hit. You know, we're no strangers to death and grief. Um, and it's interesting to be in this acute phase six days after someone dies. And for me, I get irritated because it's familiar. Like, oh, fuck, here we go. Here's all the, and, and I know all the things. <laughs> and we talk about psychological uh all the different phases of grief and all that. But there's also physical phases of grief. There's the adrenaline that's, you know, keeping you in shock and blocking you from completely feeling it all. And then there's the days and then there's all that. But what we wanted to get to is what to do and what not to do when people are going through the death of a loved one. Yeah, and and if you're wondering... Because we're right in it right now. Mm-hmm. I'm in the, um, I'm in like a weird jet lag. <laughs> uh, I've had a headache for six days. We had to travel back and forth. So that also threw yeah. out everything off. I'm in that just. Haze. I'm in a haze. And yeah. I don't, I don't want to make small talk. I don't want to talk to people. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've taken some time off from the show. I couldn't be live on the air, things like that. But, but will I. And I, and I, I'm in a unique position where a lot of people have reached out to me being a public figure and in their lives and offered help or advice 
Um, and it reminds you of, and it even reminds me, I actually, there was one bit of advice. Can we go with something I wouldn't do? Yeah. Let's go with what not to do. And then yeah. we'll go with what to it, do. Yeah. Like, and, and I'm, again, if, if, you sent, if you're listening and if you sent me this, it's okay. I'm just, I realize this isn't the best way to go usually. Um, and my, it's, it's in a lot of cases, it's natural to tell your own death story, your own grief story to a person who's dealing with grief. So now you're, you're, and I think I'm guilty of this. I think I'm helping when I say, well, my mom died and you know, I went through this. And so I got a lot of like a lot around the alcohol thing, like my so-and-so died of alcoholism and, and, um, here's some advice, you know, and, or it wasn't even advice. It was just like, I've been through that. And it was hard to see that over and over again. I don't know why that, that didn't make me feel better. Um, people are trying to relate to you. But what they're doing is they're centering themselves. Yeah. And that's that. one of the worst things you can do to someone who's going through a death. They don't have the energy to now learn about your grief and your death. And that's the definition of centering yourself. So if you can help it, don't center yourself. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing yeah. not but to I, do. I, I want to say this again. <laughs> I, I, you've done that. Don't feel bad, especially if you've done it to me. I've done this. Yeah. And it really jumped out at me as like, I don't, maybe it's just the nature of like the trauma of a, a sibling dying, not a parent. I don't know. So traumatic, right? Um, so that one, not great. The other is um, telling you it's going to get better. I was told, I've been told that a lot. It's going to get better. It, dude, I am like, I was two days into this and it's going to get better. Like not, not now. It's going to get better. And that is true. Yeah, and, absolutely is. But that's not what you say. Day, shortly after day two. Yeah. That's not, <laughs> I'm not ready for that yet. There's timing. Yeah. Right. So timing's yeah. really important. Yeah. Giving people a bunch of grief quotes is oh, a no, no, don't do that. Don't say, Oh, someone said to me once and then give some grief quote that you read online or you read in a book or someone maybe did say to you. And the reason why, again, if, if people are in a, an acute phase of grief, there's a lot of shock going on. There's a lot of um, just getting through the day. And there's a lot of logistics. There's there's so much brain power that has to go to figuring some things out that I'll just segue right into what you can do. Get right down to like eating, sleeping, logistics, and practical shit immediately. Sending people coupons to order food. If you can bring food, but then there's the whole dishes, then people are stuck with all your dishes and shit. So don't bring your dishes over. Bring, you know, disposable containers. Like come vacuum their house. We got it. We got a, someone said, can I come vacuum your house and change the sheets on your bed? You know, that's a practical, doable uh, thing. Uh, meals are good. Um, were- paying for shit is good. Like, can I pay for you know, whatever. Right. So we got a bunch of couples in our lives. One sent us a DoorDash coupon. Yeah. It it makes you feel better with all the money. You're just spending so much money. Yeah. And you're not really thinking about it, but you're just like, Oh God, it's one more thing. And it's just, it's such a relief. Yeah. And then travel and funeral homes. Yeah, That was huge. And we used it and we, our friends, we knew we were going on a road trip. We had, we had to drive. That was a fun drive, drive across to Spokane it's a five-hour drive with two kids and just lo- just came over with so many snacks, so many road trip essentials. 
It was amazing. Yeah. I will plenty never of forget that. Yep. And and drinks too. Drinks and snacks and we were all gonna starve otherwise, you know. Oh be- we, yeah. Because when you're in that amount of grief, you can't do the sort of simple tasks that you normally do for your life to run. Yeah. So just all the little things. Our neighbors took our cans out and and back, you know, for recycling and garbage day. So we don't have to worry about Um, it. Like go mow somebody's lawn. (laughs) Like go get their mail for them. Like go anything that's like a get through your day, practical, simple, logistical thing. That's what you do. Yeah. And when you offer it, um, like our friends are willing to clean our house was so sweet. And they said, we don't have to, and you don't have to get back to us, but this is just an offer. That's the other thing. Do not ask people to return. We've said this before about checking in on people. The best thing you can do is say, you don't have to get back to me. That is number one. I am not going to get back to 90% of the people mm-hmm. who wrote me. So that to me is just, again, such a gift to give someone, hey, just thinking about you, you don't have to get back to me because then, you know, you're managing them now and your own grief. You know, I had a few people ask me, how did she, well, how did she die? They wrote me and said, Oh, yeah. So back to what not to do. Don't, don't, don't. Don't ever do that. I'm not going to go into the details right now. I'm not going to type it out with my little thumbs on my phone. Here's the thing, too, is um, this is a normal response for humans yeah. that um, they have to know the details of a death because it's our way we try to protect ourselves from dying. And we don't even know we're doing it. Yeah. Like, okay, I need all the details of this death. So subconsciously, I can start registering all the things to avoid to not die like that. And then, you know, if you do know someone who maybe uh, is not dead, but maybe has a similar um, ailment or disease or something as the person, your loved one who just died, it's even more pronounced that you'll start picking apart their death just because you're trying to like... Oh, well, you know, my loved one doesn't do this or that. So therefore they're going to survive, you know, and, and we don't even know we're doing it, but it's, it's almost like our subconscious mind takes over and we have to find out all the details of someone else's death because we're trying to like survive. Does that make sense? No, it totally makes sense. Yeah. 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 I, I, I tend to want to know how something happened. So I totally get it. I just, I was a little like thrown off when I would see that come in and if someone, if someone in, in someone in your lives uh, dies from addiction, if they were an addict, alcoholic, the best thing I got, a number of people wrote immediately, it's not your fault. Those messages brought me to tears that someone understood. I didn't have to say anything. They said, hey, we love you. You don't have to get back to me. I just want you to know it's not your fault. I mean, it was right out of, you know, goodwill hunting. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. You see it enough times and you start to believe it. So when, when you, if you have the ability to send that off, if you know that's how someone died or if they're even alive and you know, your friend or your family member is dealing with someone else going through this, remind them it's not their fault because you carry such a heavy burden weight of this when someone's struggling and you see that you see how this is going to end, you know, there's no mystery. Amy and I talked about it. We knew this was going to end badly if something wasn't done. So, but we didn't talk about it publicly at all. So it's just now that we're talking about it and people are telling us and telling me it's not my fault. So that bit of advice I would, I know I'm going to use because I know plenty of people going through this. Yeah. And on a practical tip, start a phone tree. 
this one gets overlooked a lot because we're now in a texting age yeah. where everyone's just texting, texting, texting everybody and asking questions and texting, you know, or DMing on Instagram or whatever. Start a phone tree because the person, the closest to the person who died, so her husband, he doesn't need to call everyone. That's not his job. Nope. It's way too much emotional energy and logistical energy spent. So he calls John, right? John calls his brother, Eric. John talks to me. And then, you know, the three of us sort of start reaching out to people. And then we ask those people to reach out to people. Does this make sense? So it's sort of, it's a phone tree. And then you can even get a little organized with it if you've got it in you to organize yourself to assign yourself as the person who will communicate with everybody. So then once a decision is made, like, okay, this is when we're going to have the service or this is what we're going to do with the body or this is, you know, when we're going to go to the home or this is when we're going to go to the, this place or that place. Like once a decision is made, then someone needs to be responsible for like descending down the phone tree and just keeping it away from the people closest who are in grief. That's great advice. And, and, and you can even ask the person who's the closest, who's grieving, is it okay yes. if I let people know? Because sometimes you'll get off the phone or whatever, and you're thinking, is it, in my, is it my place yeah. to inform others that That's this right. has happened? So you can feel comfortable. I know I would feel comfortable if you asked me that. I would say, yeah. yes, please let people know. Or I'd say, no, it's private right now. But I also help, I think that helps people who um, might be trying to reach the people closest to the person who died. Right. Yeah. And they're not hearing back. Like if there's information, you know, I'd, um, just have it just a few, a few rungs down the tree. Like someone's in charge of like getting all the information out. We were going to have a different podcast, but we had to leave town in a hurry. Um, and there's no other, we can't fake it. Yeah. Um, anyone who listens to us on the radio knows that, um, so I appreciate you letting me talk. It was the first I've talked about it publicly. I posted just so people knew why I was going to be off the air for a while. But um, I think it's important. It, it's good to get this out. And so many people are dealing with this. I know that. And when I say you're not alone, I know that. <laughs> like I am totally aware of that. And, you know, I've watched both my parents pass. And But this one's different, Amy. It's... Uh, Someone said your sibling is like a mirror. You sort of see yourself in your sibling and you have the history and they're, they're, uh, they're kind of a time capsule. You can go back a time machine and go back uh, with that person. And when you lose them, you lose a piece of that. And uh, I get that. I get that now. I've heard that before. And now I understand. And that one's tough. And uh, I don't, I'm so glad she's not suffering but I grieve that person that she used to be and all those years we had together and uh, she will be missed. We're going to do something later for her. We're going to memorial out here. We'll have information too on, uh, on where you can donate in her name. We're still working on all those details. Yeah. Probably I know people some ask. animal. It will be some shelter animal or rescue. Yeah. Some It'll animal be some rescue. animal rescue. And <laughs> she, real quick, that dog, the dog was our neighbor's dog. And the dog she rescued. Yeah. So she rescued the dog and then she went all over this, all over the neighborhood and everywhere she could and put up signs. She took pictures of the dog 
she put them everywhere in our neighborhood, everywhere. She went to the, she called and my mom did too. They called the pound and they called everywhere. Nothing. So we're like, okay, well, I guess it's your dog. A few days after that, after weeks have passed, she walks the dog a house, four houses up. Guy comes out. He's like, hey, Max, what's up? Where'd you get my dog? And Lee's like, I don't know, seven, uh, maybe uh, eight, uh, maybe Henry's age. I don't know. And she goes, what? This is our dog. She goes, didn't you see the signs? He's like, uh, I mean, seriously, there's like a sign, two, two uh, telephone poles down. I'm like, no, I didn't see it, but thanks. Thanks for getting my dog. She's like, uh-huh. And then comes home crying, just devastated. The dog, they just post it. They get one of those like uh, chains, you know, you put into the ground and the dog just sits. Ollie's just sitting out there in the front yard every day, rain or shine, just miserable. And Lee would come by and pet the dog and spend time. And they're like, would you like to walk the dog? Because I don't walk the dog. Terrible dog owners. So she's like, yeah, I'd love to walk that. Walking the dog, taking the dog. One day, you know where this is going. They, they walk up to the house. They knock on the door. Ollie's on the leash. And they said, you know, you're a better owner than we are. Would you like, would you like to keep the dog? And Lee just got down on her knees and hugged the dog. And Ollie became uh, part of the family for the next at least 10 years. In fact, she was there and kept my mom company and died. Uh, just before my mom passed and uh, was there to the very end. And that, that was my sister. <laughs>